Hello and welcome back to another episode of the It's a Crime O'Clock Somewhere podcast. This is episode 87. Today I'll be talking about the murders of Alan and Diane Johnson. My sources for today's episode are Forensic Files, Season 12, Episode 23, titled Disrobed, ForensicFilesNow.com, CrimeTraveler.org, Murderpedia.org, TeenKillers.org, and ABCNews.go.com. As usual, all of my sources will be linked in today's show notes. A man is gunned down just after dawn. It was a bullet hole that was straight into the tunnel. His wife is killed, too. There were three people in the Johnson house. Two of them did not come out alive. No one thought the couple had any enemies. Apparently, they had quite a few. This case takes place in Bellevue, Idaho, and the city of Bellevue hadn't had a murder in 10 years before this. Alan Johnson worked as a landscaper, and his wife, Diane, was a tax collector. Alan was described as an avid hunter, and Diane was passionate about cooking and was always in the kitchen. On September 2, 2003, shots were fired inside the Johnson home. Sarah Johnson, the couple's 16-year-old daughter, had reported that her parents had been shot. Diane had been shot in her bed while she was still asleep, and Alan was found dead on the floor next to the bed and he had come into the room as he was coming out of the shower. In the shower, the police found a bullet hole about chest high in the tile. The murder weapon, a two sixty four rifle, was found on the bedroom floor. Sarah said she was asleep when she heard the first shot. She said she had woken up, went out the door, and called her mom's name and then heard a second shot. She said she left the house and ran to a neighbor's house, but Sarah said she didn't see the assailant. At the foot of the bed, the police found two knives. Another knife was found in Matthew's bedroom, the couple's 22-year-old son who was away at college. There was no forced entry into the house and nothing had been stolen. On the property, the Johnsons also had a guest house that they rented out. And on the bed, the police found the scope for the murder weapon. The current tenant had been Mel Spiegel. Mel was the owner of the murder weapon, but he was nowhere to be found. The area was cautioned off, and the police stopped the garbage truck from leaving the area. The truck had only been one, way, one house away from the Johnson home. In the trash can outside the Johnson home, the police found a pink bathrobe, a brown leather glove, a latex glove, and five bullets. The ammunition didn't match the ammunition found at the crime scene, and the murder weapon was a high-powered hunting rifle. Mel had been renting the guest house and had rented it for years. He was Alan and Diane's close friend, and he worked as an electrician. Mel was eventually found in Boise, Idaho, about 50 miles away. He had been there visiting family all weekend, and he was ruled out as their suspect. Mel said his hunting rifle was in his closet when he left. Mel was asked who he thought he was involved, and he gave the police a name, Bruno Santos, Sarah's boyfriend. Bruno was a 19-year-old illegal immigrant. He was a high school dropout and had participated in several petty crimes. Just a few days before the murders, Alan and Bruno had had a confrontation. Sarah had told her parents that she was sleeping over at a friend's house when she really had been with Bruno. Alan was furious and asked his brother-in-law, Jim, to go with him to Bruno's. I said, it's not worth getting in trouble going in there, beating up the kid or anything like that. You're not going to accomplish anything. Alan told Bruno to stay away from Sarah, and then he took Sarah home. Diane and I were in the kitchen, and I asked her, did they love each other? 
And she said, well, she says that they do. And I said, well, if they think they love each other, you won't be able to keep them away from each other. Alan also had told Bruno that if he didn't stay away from Sarah, then they would file statutory rape charges against him. Bruno was interviewed. He was described as very cocky and arrogant. The police said he was also confrontational at times. Bruno told the police that he had proposed to Sarah, which she said yes. Bruno and his mom said Bruno was asleep at the home on the morning of the murders, but no one else could corroborate that. Bruno hadn't listened to Alan and Diane and was still seeing Sarah. They had had sex in the Johnson home and the police found semen stains on Sarah's sheets, which was a match to Bruno. A search warrant was obtained for Bruno's house, his clothing and shoes were tested, and he was also taken to the hospital for a DNA test, a hair DNA test, and fingernail scrapings. None of Bruno's DNA or fingerprints were found at the crime scene. Alan and Diane's DNA wasn't found on him or his clothing, and he was eliminated as a suspect. The police then turned their focus on Sarah as a person of interest. Sarah had a rocky relationship with her mom and her dad and was on antidepressants. Sarah's family thought she was being a typical teenager, but then they noticed she was acting odd, especially after the murders. She didn't seem to show emotion and cared more about seeing her friends, and she was also talking about getting her nails done. The police just couldn't wrap their minds around a 16-year-old killing her parents. The police knew that Sarah had keys to the guest house, she would often clean it, and it's believed that she had knowledge as to the weapons that Mel had. Sarah was interviewed and had inconsistent statements. First, she said she was asleep in her bedroom and that her bedroom door was closed when she heard the gunshots. In Sarah's bedroom, the police found traces of Diane's blood and skull. It was found against the wall and on the door hinges. The police knew both her and her parents' doors were open. The police examined Sarah's pajama shirt and bottoms she had been wearing. When the police first saw her, she didn't have any blood on her clothing. Sarah's pink robe had been found in the trash can. A high-powered microscope was used to examine it. There was no blood spatter on the front, but on the back there was a lot of blood consistent by someone using a high-powered rifle. The testing of the blood revealed that it was from Alan and Diane. The testing showed that Sarah had worn the robe backwards. The police also had to examine her pajama shirt. Her, her shirt was blue and had green paintings smeared on it. Samples from the t-shirt and inside of the bathrobe were examined. An electron scanning microscope was used to compare the samples and the paint with the same chemical makeup was found on the shirt and in the bathrobe. The leather gloves and the latex glove were examined as well. The gloves would have contained skin cells, and Sarah's DNA was the source from inside the glove. The clothing and evidence from the garbage were tested for gunshot residue. The robe, leather glove, and latex glove were all sent to a lab in Chicago, and they found gunshot residue on all three items. The police were just confused by one thing, as to why Sarah didn't have blood on her or in her hair when she, was, she went to the neighbors. In October 2003, Sarah was arrested and charged as an adult. Sarah's trial was a new sensation. People just couldn't believe a 16-year-old killed her parents. At the trial, the evidence was presented. Sarah wanted to be with Bruno and wanted money. With her parents' life insurance money, she could have both. Bruno testified for the prosecution. He said Sarah had talked about hating her dad and wanting to shoot him because he didn't like their relationship. Sarah thought she could frame Mel because she knew he had a hunting rifle and she stole it after he left. On the morning of the murders, Sarah put her bathrobe on backwards, wore gloves and a shower cap, which would explain why she didn't have any blood in her hair. Sarah shot Diane first after Alan got up to shower. 
Alan then was shot when he heard the gunshot and ran into the bedroom. It's most likely that Sarah wanted to throw the police off and put the knives in the bedroom and in her brother's room. She then flushed the shower cap down the drain and plumbers found it as it had clogged the toilet. Sarah was fascinated with true crime and would know how to stage a scene. Sarah was convicted of murder and sentenced to two life terms without parole. Next motion. I was glad that they found her guilty because in my heart I believe she was, but it hurt to see some family member get in that situation. Sarah was desperate to be with Bruno, but instead of letting him go and listening to her parents, she blamed them, especially her dad. I'm sure Sarah wasn't expecting Bruno of all people to testify against her, and I hope now she realizes that she killed her parents for no reason and ruined her life. My book recommendation for this week is Games for Dead Girls by Jen Williams. Summary. When Charlie was 11, she created a monster. For Charlie and her niece Katie, it's supposed to be a quiet holiday in the peaceful out-of-the-way seaside town in England. Charlie is researching a book on the folklore of the area and the gloomy sea and dangerous caves seem to offer up plenty of material, while Katie is just there to run wild and get some fresh air. But Charlie's research reveals a deeper, darker secret, one that uncovers her own carefully hidden past. Because young women are going missing again, a teenage girl snatched from the beach in broad daylight, and before that, other girls through the decades have vanished from the area. Their families left with no answers and no bodies to bury. Charlie's creation was a thing of felt, straw, fury, and a rusty pair of scissors in the dark. It couldn't be her monster, could it? Charlie is set on discovering the truth about the girl's disappearances, but she's about to encounter a force of pure, obsessive malevolence that threatens to destroy anything in its path. I think all of us in the true crime world can relate to becoming obsessed with a case and wanting to find answers. Charlie becomes obsessed with learning more about these missing girls. I'm not really a supernatural fan, but this book definitely surprised me and I enjoyed it. I give this book a 9 out of 10. I'd love to know what you guys think about this case. This has always been on my list to cover. Please subscribe to my blog. Follow me on Instagram at It's Crime O'Clock Somewhere blog pod. Follow me on Twitter at It's Crime O'Clock. Email me at itscrimeoclocksomewhere at gmail.com. Buy me a coffee and please leave me a five-star rating and review. I'll be back next week with an all-new case and book recommendation. And remember, it's crime o'clock somewhere.